In many ways, the books of Samuel and then the books of Kings and Chronicles are like one great big roller coaster. There's a gradual and slow ascent with some excitement and anticipation kind of at the top. And then there's a fast plunge downward. And then that's followed by a series of ups and downs and radical changes of direction that sometimes are fun, but sometimes they make you want to throw up at the same time. And then culminating with an abrupt halt as everyone gets off the ride. And that really is a bird's eye synopsis of what takes place with the nation of Israel throughout this period of their history. The slow and gradual ascent takes place through the ministry of Saul and David as we watch God raising up the kingdom and and building his name into it and his glory and it laying the foundation for their future. And then it comes to its pinnacle, the top of that slow ascent of that roller coaster ride through the ministry of Solomon. There's a brief glimpse of glory as Israel gets to experience God's grace in such an abundant blessing uh, throughout the time of Solomon's reign. But then there's that plunge, you know, the first one that when you're on a roller coaster, everybody's bracing for, you know, it's coming, you know, And, and on a roller coaster, it's kind of exciting. But in the Bible here, it's a little bit saddening. And we experienced that in our study last week as we saw Solomon descend from the heights of glory and trade the glory of God and the future of his ministry for a thousand wives and their respective gods. And as he brought pollution upon Israel, so also the groundwork was laid for their demise uh, as it will begin that fast plunge downward. And so where we find ourselves tonight is in that section of Kings where now we've said goodbye to David. And we've said goodbye to Solomon, those two heroes of the faith, if you would. And what we begin is almost, almost a new section of Scripture. Because it's now just the Kings. In fact, if I were to take a poll right now, many of you probably couldn't name five of them. You know, uh, because we don't really pay much attention to the kings that came in succession after David and Solomon. They're the great ones, so to speak. And now the rest are just kind of the kings. You kind of almost feel like you can get lost in it, you know. But there's so much for us to learn in this moving forward as we see good kings, we see bad kings, we see Israel having ups and Israel having downs. And we see more than any of that, we see ourselves through the lens of these characters as God moves through their lives and as God continues to work with a nation that he's seeking to use to glorify his name. And so uh, we, 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 we come now to chapter 12. Solomon has just departed from the scene. Now his legacy, Solomon's, was a lost book the book of the Acts of Solomon that it spoke of at the end of the last chapter that we don't have. An early death, he died before he was even 60 years old, and then an ungodly son. And that's an amazing thing for me to realize is that a man who had so much and who was given so much left behind so little. He had a thousand wives, and yet all we hear about is one of his sons, and he was a real loser. (laughs) as we'll see in our study tonight. And so we pick up in chapter 12, verse 1 now, with the son of Solomon, Rehoboam. It says, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him the king. Now, he's not in Jerusalem for this coronation. It seems as though enough of the glory and centralized power that Solomon experienced has departed Now, and he has to move north of Jerusalem in order even to get everyone to come to the coronation. The the, the unity of the country is beginning to divide, and we'll see that division culminate in just a few verses. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, pause right there for just a second, because this text just got real confusing, didn't it? Did you just say Rehoboam in verse 1 and then Jeroboam in verse 2? Because that's, I'm gone. That's it. The study's over as far as I'm concerned. I don't know who's who anymore. Let's try to straighten that out before we go one step further. Remember this, if you can. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. Just think that R for Rehoboam and S are right next to each other in the alphabet. 
You know, and those two are related. Solomon's son is Rehoboam, and Jeroboam has no relation to the Davidic family at all. He's not even from the tribe of Judah. He's the character that we met last week. If you were here last week, you remember that Jeroboam was one of Solomon's servants. He was the union boss, if you would, over the tribe of Joseph. And he was industrious, he was diligent, and as he went out into the field, the prophet Ahijah met him and ripped his coat into 12 pieces. Remember that? And he said, you take 10 parts for you because you're going to rule over 10 tribes, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. But Solomon found out about it, this meeting that Jeroboam had with the prophet Ahijah, and Solomon sought to kill him to retain control. And so Jeroboam fled to Egypt. So Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, there now the king over 12 tribes, Jeroboam is in Egypt until now. It says that it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, not the son of Solomon, but the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And so apparently he had a reputation amongst the tribes. The people of Israel knew who he was, And they knew that there was a conflict between Solomon and Jeroboam, but they liked him. He stood for them. And so they call him back now. It says that they sent and they called, and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came. So now you have contractor, king, Rehoboam. And you have employees with their union boss, Jeroboam, and this is the first union meeting, union labor, you know, type of meeting that you see anywhere in the Bible. You see it here. You see Jeroboam and the people, and you see Rehoboam, who's now being coronated the king contractor, if you would. And they're going to have a meeting. And here's what they say. It says that they came and they spoke to Rehoboam. Verse 4. Thy father made our yoke grievous. The yoke was what they would put on the back of an ox or a bull when it would to work in the field. And what he's saying here is that work was hard. The hours were long. Now, therefore, make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which he put upon us, lighter, and we will serve you. Now, the people had become increasingly discontent during the latter portion of Solomon's reign. He had great vision. He had incredible uh, um, organizational skills. And the people were glad to go along with the things that Solomon was doing because it was good for the nation and good for the economy. But as time went by, the people began to gruel under the heavy taxes and under the long hours that they had to work to keep it going. I personally believe that part of the reason why they became discontent was because Solomon was no longer walking with the Lord. The Bible says that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice, but that sin is a reproach to any people. And that's what happened. When Solomon was early in his reign, he was a righteous man ruling and the people rejoiced. But as he turned away from the Lord... The spirit and joy that was in the service of the people departed and all that was left behind was the long hours and the heavy taxes. And so now they bring Jeroboam, they come to Rehoboam, the king, and they say, would you please lighten the load? Could you make it a little bit easier uh, on us in this thing? Um, Because it's too much for us and we don't want to do it anymore. And so here's the response, verse five. So he said unto them, depart yet for three days and then come again to me. And the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon, his father, while he yet lived. And he said, how do you advise that I may answer this people? So he seeks counsel. And this is an incredible thing that he does here. If only he did it with the right motives. We're going to find out that he's not doing it with the right motives. He's doing this to gain intelligence and find out really where people are at uh, with all of this. But But he comes to this. It's important for us to realize this is that there are people in this world that are older than us, that are wiser than us, that are more experienced than us, 
that have more insight than we do and have a different vantage point of things. They see the world from a different perspective than we do. And it's a wise thing for us when we have to make decisions or when we come to crossroads in our lives to seek the counsel of others. To ever think that you're so smart that you don't need anybody to you know, lend their insight to you or their experience to you, then you're, you're ready for a fall. And so it's a good thing that this young man here is seeking the counsel from the old men that walked uh, with before Solomon and were his counselors. Um, but what we find out is that he's only asking to see if they are on board with him or if they're on board uh, with the people. And so they, they give their answer in verse 7. He says, and they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant unto this people this day and will serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. The counsel of the old experienced men is that the key to successful leadership is servanthood. And this is the example that Jesus gives, isn't it? What did he do in John chapter 13 the night before he would suffer? It says that they were gathered there in the upper room and he took the, 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 the linen thing that he was clothed with in a towel and he got down on the ground and he began to wash their feet. He humbled them himself before them and he washed their feet as they sat in stunned silence, realizing that the very Son of God was washing the feet of mere men. And as he went around the room, and the, you know the brief interaction with Peter, when he was finished, he got up again and he looked at them all and he said, if I, the Son of Man, have washed your feet, how much more should you do the same for others? I've given you an example that you should follow it. And that's the example that Jesus gives, that we see from Genesis to Revelation, that the godly person, the godly leader, is a servant. And these old men had seen it. They had heard of David. Some of them were with David firsthand. And then they saw it with Solomon. And they knew. They had the experience of life to recognize. I believe that people... That's you and me now. We're all just common people. When we put things against government versus you know, individuals, most of us are just people. I believe that we have an honest will and desire to let leaders lead. We want leaders to lead. And we're not looking for them to come and wash our feet and do everything that we say. But I think that what we want, what the general person wants, is they want to be listened to. They want to be respected. They want to know that they have a voice and that, uh, and that their situation and their circumstance matters. And that's what these men are trying to communicate to Rehoboam, is that listen to the people, listen to what they're saying, and if you uh, honor their desire, then they'll be your servants forever. It will be for your good in the end. However, what we find, uh, verse 8, he's a typical counselee. Watch this. It says, but he forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, and he consulted with the young men that were grown up with him. Now, notice the contrast between what he says in verse 8 and what he said back up in verse 6. When he talks about the old men, it says that they stood before him, that is Solomon. Here, it's they stood with him, that is Rehoboam. So it's the us versus them. So now he grabs his cronies, the guys that are going to make up his government, and he consults with them and asks them their advice. You know, it's so typical of people. They, they, they ask for counsel, but really they don't want counsel. They know what they want to hear already, and they're just looking for a counselor that will bear witness and agree with what they want. And if you don't give them what they want, then they're going to go and find someone who will, and that's what Rehoboam does. And so he said to them, what counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, make the yoke which your father did put upon us lighter? And the young men that were grown up with him spoke unto him, saying, Thus shall you speak unto this people that spoke to you, saying that your father made our yoke heavy, but make you thou it lighter unto us. Thus shall you say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now whereas my father did lead you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father has chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Not just a whip, but a scourge. You know, so you think you had it bad under Solomon. You better brace yourself for what's coming under my leadership. The counsel of these young men is to show yourself to be strong. A man that is to be feared and a force to be reckoned with. Or not to be reckoned with, uh, rather. There's a saying, it is that stupidity comes with youth. <laughs> and we see that played out here uh, so incredibly, don't, don't we? 
You know, there's something about experience uh, of years. You know, um, I have in my bathroom a stool because I have young children. And, uh, you know, the sink is relatively close to the door. And most times that stool gets left uh, by the sink, which is close to the door. And, you know, the first 200 times that I walked in the bathroom in the middle of the night, I kicked the stool and woke up everybody in the house. Not because of the sound of the stool, but the sound of the man who kicked the stool, you know. But here's what happens, is that on the 201st time, I opened the door, and before walking blindly into the bathroom, I did one of these, like, half-moon arches with my foot at the, at the thing, you know, in the middle of the night in the dark, looking for the stool. And then, oh, there's the stool. Move the stool, then walk into the bathroom. And now it's just instinct all the time. Every single time I walk in the bathroom, morning, noon, night, whenever, open the door, move it out of the way. What's the point? Why are you sharing about, uh, about this in our study? Because here's why. Because there's something about experience that teaches us about life. You understand? <laughs> and, and you kick something, you stub your toe enough times, eventually you learn how to walk different. You understand? And, and that's the experience that comes with age. No matter how smart someone is, and there's some incredibly smart people in this world, smart young people in this world, there's no substitution for the experience that comes with that uh, uh, you know, age to, to bring wisdom into the equation. And that's what the old men bring that these young men know absolutely nothing about. And, and, and so what we see here is uh, Rehoboam finally gets what he wants. The best counsel that you can ever get is scriptural counsel. It's counsel that comes from God's word. And here's why. First of all, because it's tested and faithful. God's word is always going to do what it says it's going to do. And God gives wisdom for every area of life. And we walk in the counsel that God gives, we're going to succeed in the thing or the endeavor that we're seeking to have. The second reason it's good is because God stands behind his word. He'll move circumstances to see to it that his word is fulfilled. We have a sure and helpful uh, stance in heaven because of it. And the third reason it's good is because the more of the Bible you put in and write upon your heart, the more you're able to counsel yourself or at least recognize good counsel when it comes. Because when you hear it, you say, ah, that's right. That lines up with scripture and that's the way that I'm supposed to go. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so the best counsel, the only counsel, I will argue, is Bible counsel when it comes. Now, if Rehoboam knew the scriptures, then he would have recognized that the counsel of the old men was correct. But he didn't. He didn't recognize it, and he didn't even know the first thing about how to lead these people, uh, and, and he didn't ask of God. So, so let's see what happens. Verse 12. So Jeroboam, so this is now the son of Nebat, the union boss. Con, uh, th this is labor now talking. Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Wherefore, the king hearkened not or listened not unto the people. For the cause was from the Lord that he might perform his saying which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, unto Jeroboam. That's about the 12 pieces of the coat. Ten were given to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. What we have here is another one of those instances in Scripture where the sovereignty of God and the free will and responsibility of man kiss each other. Now, the Bible teaches very clearly that God is sovereign over all. That he is in control of all things and that he has control of all outcomes. But the Bible also teaches that man has a free will, the power of choice and the power and responsibility to govern his actions. Now, in that, there is an apparent contradiction. If God's in control of all things, then how, do, how can I have free choice and responsibility? Doesn't God's sovereignty overrule my choice in a matter. Uh, just a couple of days ago, my son Rocky and I were driving in the car and he told me, he said, Dad, I finished reading through the New Testament on my own. 
And I said, really? I said, that's great. I, I, I was so proud of him. You know, just, uh, um, you know, he's such a diligent kid. He's a kid. You know, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to think he walks around with a halo. You know, he's a child. And, you know, he gets in trouble and things, you know. But he, but he read through the New Testament on his own. And he said, where do you think I should read next? And I said, I think you should do it again. And he kind of had a puzzled look on his face, like, why would I do that? It took me so long to do it the first time, I finally did it, and now you want me to do it again? And I said, Rocky, here's the thing. I said, the Bible is written in 3D. You know, you understand the difference between, you know, something that's two-dimensional, a picture on a page, and something that's 3D, something that's physical in real life. And I said, when you read the Bible, what happens is you, you get points of truth from different verses and different sections of the Bible. But then what happens is as you live a little bit and then go back and read the Bible again, those points connect to each other with new things and they also connect with your life and the experiences that you have. And what happens is that it begins to form a picture of real life truth in a way, and there's, there's something tangible to it as you continue to go through the word. In fact, Jesus said that in the volume of the book, it is written of me. That's a three-dimensional term, volume. You know, area is just length times width, but volume means that there's depth. There's 3D to the thing. And so I was explaining this to Rocky and the importance of just continually going through the word. But I was wrong. Because in fact, the Bible isn't written in 3D. It's written in 4D or more, maybe even more. See, 3D means that we can understand it because we live in a three-dimensional world, time, space, and matter. We operate in the tangible. It's 3D. But God is outside of the limitations of our experience here in this world. He operates in bigger capacity, in a greater dimensional reality than what we have and what we experience. And so what, what's the point? The point is this, is that there are some things scripturally and spiritually and about God practically that it's impossible for us to understand fully or reconcile in our finite three-dimensional world. And one of those such things is this concept of God's sovereignty, control of all things, and man's free will and responsibility that we govern our choices and we answer to those choices and, and somehow God is still in control of that. And when we try to put those two things together, our check engine light goes on because it's impossible to, to realize it. And here's, here's what I mean. Let's say you want to take a, a sovereignty position and say, well, God is just sovereign overall and he's pulling the strings. He's controlling everything. Well, you're going to take that too far, and, and where that goes is that man is no longer free to choose. God is pulling the strings and doing everything. So you won't pray anymore, because what difference does prayer make? God's in control. You won't share the gospel or witness to anyone, because God's already got it in his hands by election. He knows who's going to be saved and who isn't, and so it doesn't matter if I share or not, even though we're told to. You won't oppose the evil of the world of our day, because what's the point? God's in control. He can turn it on or turn it off whenever he wants. You will ultimately resign yourself. You must resign yourself if you want to stand only there to believe that God is actually the one that authors evil. He's doing the evil things that we see in the world because God is sovereign over all things. Well, the Bible teaches that we are to pray, that we are to share, that we are to oppose the evil of our day, and that God is not the author of confusion or of evil. And so, well, then, okay, we well, say, fine. Well, then that means it isn't sovereignty. God isn't sovereign. And that it's all about man's responsibility. And so you stand over there. And here's what happens. You go too far down that. And you realize that God is bound now. Did you hear what I just said? God is bound. God is not bound. By the actions of men. His sovereignty is limited. And the future is in my hands, not in his hands. Because what I do ultimately affects eternity, not what he does. His power is hung upon my weakness. I become the weakest link in God's chain of command. Because now, you know, yeah, he's sovereign, but since he honors what I do, then he can only do what I'm willing to let him do. And so therefore, I'm the weakest link in God's chain of power. And now I must keep myself because it's possible for me to screw up what God began in me. Now, we know that God is not bound by the actions of man. We know that his sovereignty isn't limited, that the future is not certainly in my hands, praise the Lord. 
That his power is not contingent on my weakness, and it's not up to me to keep myself. He's the one that keeps me. And so thus there's a division in the church. Which is it? Is God sovereign or is man free? Which is it? I don't know. And it's neither. I love this quote by C.H. McIntosh. He's a theologian from uh, a, a, at least a generation ago, um, but he's gone now to, to be with the Lord. But listen to what he writes about this, uh, this debate. He said, nothing is more damaging to the truth of God, more withering to the soul, or more subversive of all spiritual growth and progress than mere theology between sovereignty and responsibility. It is impossible for the soul to make progress beyond the boundaries of the system to which it is attached. If I am taught to regard sovereignty as the absolute end, I shall not think of looking beyond it. And a most glorious field of heavenly truth is shut out from the vision of my soul. I'm stunted, narrowed, one-sided, and I'm in danger of getting into that hard, dry state of soul which results from being occupied with mere points of doctrine instead of with Christ. A disciple of the high school of sovereignty will not hear of a worldwide gospel, of God's love to the world, of glad tidings to every creature under heaven. He has only gotten a gospel for the chosen. On the other hand, a disciple of the low school of responsibility of man will not hear of the eternal security of God's people. Their salvation depends partly upon Christ and partly upon themselves. According to this system, the song of the redeemed should be changed. Instead of worthy is the lamb, we should have to add, and worthy are we. We may be saved today and lost tomorrow. All of this dishonors God and robs the Christian of all true peace. What's the bottom line in all of this? It's this, is that God is bigger than human understanding and He's as big as he needs to be for you and me. In other words, to hold one position above another is to make God small enough for you to understand him. And when you make him small enough for you to understand him, he's not big enough to be what you need. You understand? The Bible teaches that God is sovereign, but it also teaches that we are responsible. That he's in control of all things, but that we also play a part through our prayer, through our sharing, through what we do. And where those two things meet is beyond the vanishing point that you and I have. We won't understand it on this side of eternity. And yet the Bible teaches both. And so what's happening here? Is Rehoboam choosing this? Or is God pulling the strings behind the scenes and making him heed the counsel of the young man? I don't know. It just simply says, it was of the Lord. Well, we could go on and on and on and on and on with that. And if you want to burn the brain calories, you are free to, but you will end up right back where you began asking the question, well, which is it? Because we don't know. That's a pertinent, you say, why did you diverge on that? I did it on purpose. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue. It comes up. Listen, walk in the word. Listen to what God says. Don't turn, the Bible says, to the right hand or to the left. Just listen to what God says. Well, verse 16, what's the outcome of, of uh, Rehoboam's folly? So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, see now to your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. The whole nation now defects from Rehoboam. They say, You know what, Judah, you guys govern yourselves. We're not having these taxes and this burden any longer. But as for the children of Israel, which dwelt in the cities of Judah, that's the tribe of David and Solomon, Rehoboam reigned over them. So then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the tribute or the taxes. He sends the IRS, basically. Smart guy, right? And it says that all Israel stoned him with stones that he died. Do you see that? This must have been in Denver or in Oregon because the IRS guy got stoned uh, with the people, you know? <laughs> See, there's nothing new under the sun. That which was will be again, the Bible says. And uh, it happened then, it's happening today in our own world, you know. Listen, you gotta, you got to be a little bit hollow, right? That when you're trying to do some damage control about a, a breach in the nation, here, send the IRS after them, audit them. That'll bring them back to unity, you know. Uh, that doesn't work. <laughs> Therefore, King Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot and to flee 
to Jerusalem. So he leaves Shechem, which is north in the middle of, of the land, and he runs like a little girl. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I, didn't, I did not mean that the way it sounded. You, it was playground talk, really. I Honestly, you, I think you understand. It, 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 okay, um, backing out of the hole, you know, that I'm digging for myself here. He runs like a coward, okay, back to Jerusalem. And what he demonstrates in this is that Solomon's little finger was thicker than Rehoboam's waist, okay? He was all talk. That's what this guy was uh, when he followed the counsel of, uh, of the young men. But he, um, and I'm never going to recover from that. This study shot, you know, it's over, you know. He tries to reunify a second way. Well, actually, no, verse 19. He says, so Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. If you want to, you could draw a line under that verse, underneath verse 20, uh, right there in the Bible, because that is uh, really a turning point for the nation of Israel in their experience. The kingdom from this point is no longer unified. For the rest of Old Testament history, they will be a divided nation. And we will read about two different sides. We will read about Israel, which is the ten tribes to the north. And we will read about Judah, which is the tribe of David, to the south. Okay? And that's the way it's going to be from now on. So when we read going forward, such and such a king reigned over Israel. It's speaking of the northern tribes. And when we read of such and such a king that reigned over Judah, we're speaking of Judah only. And so this is the point where that happens. And it will be this way all the way up until the days that we're living in right now, when Israel's regathered back into their land and they're at one and they are unified right now, fulfillment of prophecy. Well, verse 20, he tries again to unite the kingdom. It says, it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam was come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men, which were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came unto Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and unto the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, You shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. And they hearkened, he's learning something, therefore, to the word of the Lord, and returned to depart according to to the word of the Lord. The summation of Rehoboam's uh, folly in all of this uh, is how to lose a kingdom in three days. And, and if you want to know how to do that, you can just jot these things down. Here are six quick steps to lose a kingdom in three days. Number one is have the attitude that it's all about you. That it all exists because of you and it all exists for you. Number two, don't listen to anything that anyone else has to say about anything. Number three, don't forget, there is no one smarter than you are. No one. Number four, talk down on everyone. Make sure that they know how important you are and make sure they feel less important. Number five, fear is greater than love. Frequent episodes of threatening strength are essential. And number six, do not, under any circumstances ever, ask God for help. Remember, you are smarter than God. And that's exactly what Rehoboam demonstrates in the earliest days of his reign over Israel. We never see him once build an altar for the Lord. We see him consulting the young men and consulting the old men, but he never once asks for counsel from a priest or at the mouth of the Lord, like Solomon did when he offered a thousand burnt offerings and God came to him and said, what do you want? Nothing. This man is completely godless and filled with himself. Now, these rules apply to any area of life. You can ruin a, ruin a marriage this way. You can ruin a relationship this way. You can ruin children and your relationship with them as your parents this way. You can ruin a ministry like this. You can ruin a job or a career opportunity or a company. You can ruin anything. All you have to do is follow these six steps, and you'll succeed every time in ruining uh, whatever it is that you're 
you're trying to do. And that's what Rehoboam does. And so now we move to Jeroboam in verse 25. It says, then Jeroboam, so we know who he is, right? He's the son of Nebat. He built Shechem. So he moves in to the place that Rehoboam attempted to set up shop in Mount Ephraim, and he dwelt therein. And he went out from there, and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. In other words, he's afraid that now that he has set up his kingdom, that the people are going to wake up, realize that they don't want a divided nation, and they're going to change their mind and go back to Rehoboam and, and be a unified nation again. That's his fear. And so because of that fear, he says, verse 27, if this people go up to, to sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me, and they'll go again to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And so now in response to this fear, look what he does in verse 28. He's going to start his own religion. He says, whereupon the king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold. And he said unto them, the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, which was nearby uh, um, uh, Shechem. It wasn't too far away. It was in the middle of the land. And it says the other one he put in Dan. And Dan was in the far north of the land. So he puts one of these calves in the middle of the land, and he puts the other one way up in the north uh, where people could easily get to it. And it says in verse 30 that this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places. Now, that word house, you could circle it in close by in the margin somewhere, you could write the word network. He made a network of high places. Uh, so basically, all around the land, he built these high places like we read about in other parts of the scripture, but they were all linked to one system. And this would be the system of Jeroboam's uh, false worship. And so you could go to any one of these high places and you're legitimately worshiping according to Jeroboam's system. And it said that he made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And that's a no-no. The priests were to come from the tribe of Levi according to the instruction of God through Moses. And that's a non-negotiable. There could be no priests. In fact, that's why uh, Uzzah died. Uh, he touched the ark. He was not supposed to be doing what he was doing. And so Jeroboam, verse 32, ordained a feast now in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month like the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar... So he did in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Now, the eighth month is, in the 15th day, is one month after the Feast of Tabernacles. And so, a month after what God prescribed, he did something like what God prescribed, only it concludes in verse 33. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel, the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart. And he ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar, and he burnt incense. So we see this man, Jeroboam, out of fear of losing the allegiance of the people, he starts his own religion. His rationale is that if they are right with God, and if they worship God, then they'll have no need for me. And so I'll prevent that. Now, the problem with that is two things. Number one, is that God told him that he would reign over ten tribes. He had God's promise that God was going to keep the people in allegiance to him. And he was even told that you'll be as great as David if only you honor me. The second thing that's wrong with this is that Jeroboam knew already that it was because of idolatry that God tore the kingdom away from Solomon. God said it to him firsthand. He said, because they caused the people to turn from me and worship other gods, that's why I'm tearing the kingdom away from Solomon and giving it to you. He should have known better. He heard it right from God. And yet he goes even further than what Solomon did in starting his own uh, religion in this. When you and I let the fear of losing what we have 
govern the decisions that we make, we're getting to a bad place. That's a bad place to be. The Bible says that God upholds us in his hand. And if God is doing something in our lives and he's promised something to us in our lives, then he's able to preserve and to keep the promises that he made. It's not up to us to preserve it through our manipulations and the things that we do. That's what he does here. Well, uh, the false religious system consists of five ingredients. Uh, Ingredient number one is that he distracted them from the truth. Don't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to hear things, you're going to see things, you're going to be reminded of things that are going to contradict my false religion. So don't don't go near the truth. That's uh, detrimental. Step number two is give them something visual and tangible to replace something that's spiritual and invisible. God clearly states throughout the Bible that there's to be no graven image, no earthen representation of him, but they that worship him are to worship him in spirit and in truth. The problem is that man likes something he can see, something he can attach an invisible concept to that's tangible that he can relate to, that satisfies the religious appetite that's in man. And thus he provides that for them. He gives them something visual. Step three is that he makes it convenient and easy. It's so hard for you to do what God says to go to Jerusalem every year for the feast. Instead, why don't you just come up here? We'll remove the cost. We'll remove the sacrifice and the travel burden. And you could just worship God up here in this place. You don't have to go down there and obey God. We'll replace it with something that's more reasonable. Step four is that he gives it an air of legitimacy. That is, he ordains a feast that is like the Feast of Tabernacles, only it's one month later. It's, hey, this is the same thing that they're doing. It's just a little bit different, but it's really the same thing. It's the same God. It's the same meaning. It's the same sentiment. It's just not what God said, but that's not really a big deal. Only it says in verse 33, he had devised it in his own heart and that God wasn't in it. But it worked. The people caught on to this thing and that was step five. Step five in Jeroboam's religion is just give it some time and once the people get used to doing it this way, it'll grab a hold of their heart and it will become the way that they believe. For the next 350 years, This false religion is going to be the prevalent religion of the northern ten tribes. 350 years. Can you imagine in our day today, if Satan could come up with a religious system that claimed to have its root in the Bible, even though it didn't, and then keep the people that are in that system from reading the Bible to find out that what they're doing is wrong. Can you imagine if Satan could do that? And then imagine if he could make it visual and tangible and sensual, if he could institute relics and statues and candles and incense and cathedrals, things that would give you something to attach a concept of God and a feeling of spirituality to in a way that you could legitimize what it is that you are doing, even though it's, well, you know. And imagine if he could make it convenient. If there was no real sacrifice or cost, it doesn't have to govern your life, just show up sometimes. No cross, no uh, you know, self-sacrifice, no serving and dying to self. Just give attendance to this once in a while. It's just so convenient. And if he could just hold it together for enough time, a few generations of people just doing it, then people will no longer even question anymore whether it's legitimate or not because it will have uh, authenticity based upon precedent. If Satan could come up with something like that in our day, he could deceive a lot of people. The problem with will worship, that is making up our own religion that isn't according to what God says is true, is that it's not about preference and taste, it's about eternal destination. This is about where you're going to end up when you die. This is a high stakes business that we're in when we're talking about spiritual truth right here. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, from the time that you were a child, you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. If you get away from the Bible and letting God determine in your life and in my life the way that he is to be worshipped and what is the way for us to please heaven, then we are in dangerous ground. 
Paul wrote concerning the Bereans, or he spoke concerning the Bereans in the book of Acts. He said that they were more noble than they that were in Thessalonica because not only did they receive the word with all readiness, but it says that they searched the scriptures daily to see if the things which were spoken of by Paul were true. And our only line of defense against the false things are what's true. And if we neglect what's true, then we're certain to believe something that is a lie. What happens? And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar and the word of the Lord. And he said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord. Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee, he's speaking to the altar, shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn, and the ashes that are upon it will be poured out. A nameless man of God shows up, at Jeroboam's false altar in Bethel. And he gives an amazing prophecy, calling out a king by name that will come from the tribe of Judah, that's the lineage of David, 350 years into the future. In 2 Kings chapter 23, you can read about the ministry of Josiah and what he does, and he fulfills this prophecy to a T. Only God can predict the future. And isn't it amazing that the very thing that Jeroboam was trying to prevent is what comes upon him through this man's word. A king, a descendant of David, is going to burn men's bones, desecrating this altar, and it will be torn uh, in half. And and then the, the sign happens. Well, it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him! And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it into him again. God shriveled his hand in that very moment. The altar also was torn and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Pray now to the Lord thy God and pray for me and treat the Lord that my hand may be restored to me again. And the man of God besought the Lord. And the king's hand was restored him again, and it became as it was before. Isn't it amazing how gracious God is? What would you have done? I know what I would have done. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If you will give me half your house, I will not go in with you. Neither will I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was charged me, or told to me, by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that you came. So he went another way, and he returned not by the way which he came uh, to Bethel. Now, it's important that you recognize here that the reason why the man of God does not go home with Jeroboam is because God spoke to him the word of the Lord commanded that he do not eat nor drink in that place, but that he go home another way. So the encounter ends here. Now, why does Jeroboam want the man of God to come? No doubt, it's damage control. He's just prophesied against the false religious system of Jeroboam. And now if he can win the allegiance of this prophet, he can work the system to come out on top, even though his system has been denounced or desecrated. Well, look what happens. It says, now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel. And his sons came home and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king. Them they told also to their father. And their father said unto them, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me the donkey. So they saddled him the donkey, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Are you the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. So then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you, nor go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall not eat bread or drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that you came. 
And he said unto him, so now the old prophet says to the young prophet, sounds like a joke, doesn't it? It's not a joke. He says, I am a prophet also as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. So now the old prophet gets a word from the Lord. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as you have disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded thee, but came back and has eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which the Lord did say to you, Eat no bread and drink no water, your carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. In other words, you're, you're done. Pack, pack, get your affairs in order. You're dying soon. And it came to pass after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled for him the donkey to wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him and his carcass was cast in the way and the donkey stood by it, by the carcass, and the lion also stood by the carcass. So the lion is there, doesn't eat the man, doesn't eat the donkey. There's three items sitting there by the wayside, a dead man, a standing donkey and a sitting lion. Sounding more and more like a joke every minute, isn't it? It's not a joke. What we have here, and bear with me, I know uh, we're getting towards the end, but I'm coming down to 30,000 feet here as we descend a little bit. First of all, we have a lying prophet. There is a supernatural element to the Christian life. God knows the future, and the Bible says that God gives direction for our lives. And in that, God also uses people as a means of communicating that truth and those directions uh, to people. He uses people as his servants and his instruments. And the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Bible talks about a supernatural manifestation of God's spirit in the world. The Bible talks about the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom. And the Bible talks about miracles and gifts of healing. And the Bible talks about tongues and interpretations of tongues. And things that for us are supernatural because they're outside of the ordinary of what we operate within daily. And there's no reason for any of us to think that any of that has changed or that God has changed in the way that he deals with people within the world. But here's the problem. The problem is, not on God's end, but on our end, is that man can manipulate and learn to exploit those expressions of the supernatural in order to benefit himself. And it can even happen among men that have been legitimately, or women that have been legitimately used by God in someone's life at a certain time. They can then use the foundation of God's work in their life to manipulate someone and they can lie. In, in the name uh, of the Lord in that. They do that to gain money. They do it to manipulate people's behavior. They do it sometimes. A pastor will do it to keep people from leaving his church. Sometimes he'll do it to get people to leave his church. You know, there's all kinds of, uh, of different reasons in this thing. But here's the bigger problem with all of that. Is that you're messing with people's lives when you're dealing with the supernatural things. And even worse than that, you're using God to mess with people's lives. And I don't think that makes God real happy. So what's the protection against it? And how can we continue to be led by God and allow God's instruments to speak into our lives without falling into this trap that the young prophet falls into when the older man of God lies to him? And the answer is very simple. The answer is know God's word. See, why did the young prophet get deceived? Because he went against the word that had been given to him. See, God gave his word to the young man. He violated the word that God said. It was a sure word. He repeats it twice. And yet he's intimidated by the age of the older prophet. And so he goes against the word and he gives respect to the man over what God has already said. And any time we do that in our lives, that we go with something that we hear from a man to the violation of what God has already said in his word, then we're on a slick path towards destruction. 
And that's what happens to this young man. The protection is to know God's word and do not vary from it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. How do you prove all things and how do you test the spirit, whether it's of God? The answer is by the word of God. Does it line up and is it congruent with what God says? Or is it outside of the revelation? The second thing that we see here that's important for us to to take away from this is that the word of God always trumps the word of an angel. If it ever happens to any of you that you have an angel visit you, and I've never had that happen. I've never talked to someone who can tell me that they've had an angel come and actually talk to them. But if an angel ever comes and gives you a a message, uh, if one word, if one syllable of that angel's message does not line up perfectly with what the Bible teaches, then you can throw the whole thing away as being from Satan itself. Because God's word always trumps an angelic world. The whole Mormon religion is based upon a a revelation that an angel gave to a young man named Joseph Smith in Palmyra, New York. He gave him a, a long message. It consists of the Book of Mormon, the Doctrines and the Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. I mean, volumes of things this angel gave. Here's the problem. It violates the word of God. It teaches things that contradict and are contrary to Scripture, and God will never contradict His Word. It contradicts the Bible in a thousand ways. Why are you bringing this up? Here's why. Because the largest demographic of those that belong to the Mormon church are those that formerly were a part of Christian churches that should have known better. They should have known the Word of God and what the Bible taught. And so when they heard that message, they could say, well, that's not true because the Word of God trumps the word of an angel. The third thing that's worthy of our our notice is this, is that God doesn't ever change his mind. God will not speak something to your heart one day and then the next day come to you and say, well, remember what I said to you yesterday? Never mind that now. I changed my mind that we're going to take things a different way. He is incredibly consistent. In the Bible, that's called the immutability of God. Uh, That's the doctrine that that is, or the impassibility, Charles Spurgeon called it, that God doesn't ever change his mind. He doesn't change his mind for an individual, and he doesn't change his mind for a generation. If God said something was true for one generation, then that same thing holds true for every successive generation from now until forever. He will not change his mind because cultures change or society changes. His word is his word and it stands. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And then number four, is any new revelation from God better harmonize with what has previously been revealed? The word of God is our gauge. And if something claims to have its root in scripture, then it must be in total harmony with scripture through and through. Why did this young man die? I believe there's a practical reason and a spiritual reason. The practical reason and the reason why God didn't want this young prophet eating with Jeroboam is because the association would illustrate acceptance. In that culture, if you ate with someone, it meant that you were becoming one with them. And for this prophet to eat with Jeroboam would mean that he was agreeing with or or accepting his person, which God was not accepting his person in that position. Now, this prophet, though he was a prophet, he wasn't that great of a prophet, and here's why. Because he dwelt near Jeroboam, and yet he did nothing or said nothing about the false religious system of Jeroboam. And so, essentially, by eating with this prophet, the young prophet is doing the same amount of damage to the potency of the message as he would have been doing if he ate with Jeroboam. Do you understand? And so God isn't going to let the message in the torn altar and his condemnation of that system become debunked by the disobedience of this prophet. And so God, to stand for his own reputation and for the good of the nation at large, is going to take this prophet home. The spiritual reason, and, and probably the greater reason why this man died, is to illustrate for you and I and for every generation that would come after this point what happens spiritually 
to any person that heeds a false prophet's message and has moved away from God as a result of it. In the New Testament book of Galatians, and I'm down to about 6,000 feet now uh, in elevation as we land the plane uh, here. So don't get nervous just because I'm turning to a different part of the Bible, you know. But Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert. Now, he doesn't say transform. He says pervert. That means incrementally change the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That means cut off, assigned to the lowest hell. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than what you have received, let him be accursed. The whole reason why Paul wrote Galatians and why he wrote Colossians and why the book of Jude was written, and why First John was written, was because of false prophets that had perverted the doctrine of the churches with their false message. And if the error of that false message wasn't detrimental to the salvation of those that heard it and believed it, then there would be no need for Galatians, Colossians, First John, and Jude to be written at all. It costs something when a person moves away from the hope of the gospel and puts their faith in something else. And that point and picture is illustrated perfectly here through the death of this prophet. He heeds the voice of a false prophet that he lied to because he said he heard a word from an angel and he goes home early because of it. We'll read the rest of the chapter, verses 25 all the way through 32, and you'll see uh, what happens to the carcass of this dead man. But I want to read verse 33 at the end of the chapter. It says, and after this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but he made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places himself. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. We, we see that the final word concerning Jeroboam is that he is unrepentant of this religion that he has begun, and it will persist for uh, several hundred years now into Romans' future. But here is for us a proof that miracles and signs do not produce faith. How many people have you talked to that said, well, if God would simply show me a sign, then I would believe? The answer to that is, no, you wouldn't. And it's been proven over and over and over again throughout history. People rationalize, they forget about. I mean, his hand withered up, the altar broke in half, and then he was healed. How much clearer of a sign can you get than that? And yet he doesn't repent, and he doesn't turn back to God or heed the word of the young prophet. Signs and wonders don't produce faith. Well, then where does faith come from? Romans ten seventeen. It says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Jeroboam had no audience for God, or he was no audience to God. He would not listen to God's word, and therefore there was no faith, and he persisted in his uh, evil ways. Um, In conclusion, and the worship team can come, we're at uh, 27 feet here. Who said we end at 830? (laughs) Just kidding. Rehoboam failed because he didn't have God's word. That's Rehoboam. You know the R next to the S. Rehoboam failed in succession to Solomon because he didn't have God's word. The people were deceived under Jeroboam because they neglected God's word. And the young prophet died because he disobeyed God's word. So what do you think the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us tonight here? I think it's that we are to be people of the word. That we're to know the word. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When you know the word, you know God. Because the word is God. It's a reflection of his heart, his mind, his spirit, his thoughts, his wisdom, his ways. To obey the word then 
is to walk with God because you're walking with the word or walking in the word and therefore you're walking with God. So to know the word is to know God. To obey the word is to walk with God and to continue in the word. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. You'll be free. You'll be free from your sins and your old life. You'll be free from your flesh and its vices. You'll be free from deception of false religion. You'll be free from false prophecy and false doctrine that seeks to move you off of the path that leads to eternal life. You will be continually, progressively, and totally set free as you and I, as we continue in the word of God. So that's the word of the Lord for us tonight. Heed the word of God. How Will we make our way prosperous and successful as we take heed according to thy word? Father, we thank you tonight for your word, for what you speak to us, the truth that you tell us. We thank you, Lord, for the power that it has to convict and convince. We thank you that your spirit comes behind as we study and read and bears witness in our hearts. Lights of truth flash in us as we see and we say, yes, that's right, it's real, it's true. We thank you, God, that you haven't left us to navigate it by ourselves, but you've promised to give us the helper, the counselor, the Holy Spirit to interpret, to apply it to our lives, that we might walk and be wise. And so tonight, Lord, we ask that you would again rekindle a hunger and a fire in us for your word, that we would love your word, that we would say with Job, I have esteemed your word more than my daily bread, that we would heed the command of Christ that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that it would be our food, our life, Lord. We pray that we would have it by root of heart. So give us tonight, Lord, a passion for it, for your truth, and a passion to want to know you more, the God of the truth, and that we would also experience the freedom that comes from your truth, as your truth makes us free. So take us tonight, O Lord, and start something in us right now, Lord, that's eternal, that never ends, that never dies, an eternal hunger. We thank you, Father, for what you do for us and what you do in us. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.